This is Adam Puatic from the CRE podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the episode that you're about to hear. It was recorded just before COVID-19 became the omnipresent pandemic that it is now. This episode was recorded just at the end of February, and then it unfortunately got uh, trapped in our office, which was you know, responsibly shut down, as, as most other offices have done. But the content was trapped in our office. We have managed to free it, and we're going to release it now. It is great content. I want you to enjoy it. But I also want to set the context. This was recorded just before COVID-19 was getting going. And that is why some of the references might seem a little disjointed from the current reality. Enjoy. Welcome to the CRE Podcast. 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. We are recording today at the Real Capital REIT here in Toronto. I am Adam Powadik, sitting here with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. Our guest of honor is Don Clo, President and CEO of Crombie REIT. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, boys. First guest of 2020. Turn new season. This is the fourth year that Adam and I have been doing these podcasts and the second year now with the partnership with Informa. So thanks for joining us, Don, and being part of this year. For regular listeners, this is kind of old hat, but for you, it's new. Let's start with your background and kind of why did you get into real estate? How did you get into real estate? So I'm often a believer in serendipity and things just happened, but I ultimately started out getting a CA designation, so a CPA today, and then didn't like the audit profession at all. That's and, weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wanted to get into another- No offense to auditors listening. <laughs> no. I just insulted a whole bunch of listeners. So did Sorry. I. So did I. It's okay. <laughs> But just through a relationship, ended up meeting an entrepreneur who wanted to have his CA, and they were very entrepreneurial people. And today, the son, who was, I was talking about, Jim Spatz, and his father, Simon, are in the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame for building up an incredible company and portfolio in Halifax. I worked there about 17 years. So you're originally from Halifax? I'm originally from PEI, oh, yeah. but I went to school in Nova Scotia and then ultimately settled in Halifax to get my CA. And then we worked 17 years together. And for the last eight, I was a partner of the company. And we went, I think, from about $100 million in assets up to about $300 million. And then in 2004, I retired, quote unquote. Really, it was just taking a couple of years off. Sold my shares back to my partners. It was very amicable and terrific relationship. But it's where I really cut my teeth. I learned every aspect of the real estate industry. What kind of assets were they focused on? Or was it kind of everything? Primarily multi-res, but then okay. they got into commercial and industrial and office. And uh, exclusively Atlantic Canada? Exclusively pretty well Halifax, wow. and quite honestly. But it was started as an apartment base. The father had built it up, and then the son had taken us into commercial. But importantly for me, the opportunity was when I stepped in, it was as an accountant, but it was an entrepreneurial company with not a lot of resources people-wise. And so I could wrap my hands around legal, construction, development, all aspects, all aspects of finance, treasury, et cetera, et cetera, and really develop the company from the inside out. But working 80 hours a week, doing a lot of it yourself, you learn the hard way and you learn the detail. So for me, it was that fire hose of knowledge at a very early age from about 27, 28 into my early 40s that really gave me just a lot of knowledge about how to do things well for the long term and be able to talk to every person today in our company and know something and or a fair amount about what they do in detail. What was the catalyst for the departure? Was it just kind of burnt out? Uh, how much fun is retiring in your 40s too? That's the other <laughs> yeah. question. Seriously. Well, it's Teach fun. me, yeah. old wise one. <laughs> well, it was, you know, you have a lot of concentration risk because you have all your assets in one company or most of them. And so we had that. And then it was time. It was just time to change. 
And so, and I wanted to explore the world. When you're working long hours, as many of you do today, and we do too, you don't get a chance to explore. So my wife and I, we took five months and went around the world to 10 countries and importantly over to China and Southeast Asia and Australia, New Zealand. And so I think and we learned a lot about ourselves, learned a lot about the world. And so that was, a, I think, a personality builder and self-awareness builder. And then when I came back, I honestly didn't really want to go to work for anybody, but I was through meeting a variety of people on consulting. I was fortunate enough to talk to Frank and Paul Sobey, and they said, we need a development company. You're a developer. Just come with us for one year, start up a development company. And so I said, okay, I will. Now it's 13 years later. I've been there. The evolution for me personally was I started the development company two years into it. That was at the Empire Company level which we were then feeding developments to Crombie REIT. And two years later, after I started, the CEO of the REIT decided to retire and they asked me to be the CEO of a REIT. And again, I had no experience running a REIT, no experience with public companies other than a couple of years at Empire. And I said, well, I don't really know how to run a REIT. I don't know how to run a public company for sure. But nevertheless, it's worked out quite well. And so now it's 10 and a half years running the REIT and our 10-year return is 11.7% which is pretty well the top return in the retail REIT space over that period, which a lot of people don't know, that Karambi's got great total yeah. unit holder return, what, what which was, we're quite proud about. What was the first, and I, I will we'll most definitely get to Karambi REIT and the philosophy today, but I'm interested about what it was like those first year, two years, being the head of a REIT, trying to figure out what does this mean? What am I supposed to say? Like, I mean, I, I appreciate coming from a private institution where you've got shareholders, but those are really just the owners and your partners. All of a sudden, you've got a different concept of shareholders. And how do you have to transition to the way you think about your investments and what you say publicly? Like, what was that experience like? I think you go back to your values, quite frankly. And I'm very fortunate with Crombie that the values of the Sobe family, which are long-term investors, they're one of the most successful investors in Canada, but they do so humbly with integrity. And then I did have some great counsel in Frank Sobe, who was our chairman of the board. So the first day I was on the job as CEO was our board meetings, committee meetings. Ah. The second day on the job was a board meeting and an analyst call. And so I was quite fortunate. Don't say anything, right? (laughs) Just sit there and be quiet. Number one, he came in and sat next to me, which was interesting because normally, and he never did it again, but he sat next to me. And then two said, don't give any guidance. That's the number one rule. And so, yeah, so you're cautious. But yeah. you know, after a while, you get the hang of it. And it's a good story. So it's an easy one to tell, right? And Great. today, how much of your day would be comprised of running a company versus the real estate aspect of the company you're running? I mean, you run the company every day, but I have a great team. We have very strong senior leadership with a lot of experience. And so one of the phrases I once heard, which I think is wise, is you want them to do in your absence what they do in your presence. Right. And so I think that's that's, that's important. We have offices in seven locations across Canada, 350 people. There's 20 in Calgary. There's 30 in Toronto, all over. So you can't be all places all the time. You just, but what you're doing is setting a course of direction. You're setting the values of the business. We've actually said we want to change over the last 10 years from being institutional to entrepreneurial, but be institutional enough so that you obviously got to follow the ground rules. But the entrepreneurial thinking is, I think, what's driving us, especially with the evolution of the business, to do significant change. This is a tough question. I'm sorry for asking, but how would you define your leadership style? I think leadership comes down to three things. One, it's authenticity. So know who you are and be who you are, not have a mask. Number two is logic. Do you have good logic when you face challenges that are tough? And number three would be empathy. So do you think of the others more than yourself. And so if you can do all three of those things, then that builds trust. And trust is, I think, the most important foundational piece of a leader. The hardest part for leaders is empathy. 
quite frankly. That's where 80 or 90% of people get it wrong. They don't think of the others. So you work on all those things. So I feel like I lead a team, but I don't have to be in the space. And I really am looking, and especially now that things are, I'll call it improved in our industry. Retail is bifurcated, but our part of retail is good. Grocery anchored retail. People are starting to respect it. Our share price is up a lot. I guess now start to look really more three, five, and 10 years out. They can look up as opposed to looking down every day and just grinding out every deal. And our teams handle most of the deals. So not sure if I've answered your question. My days are really talking to my teams, focused on the most important things. I try to focus on three or four things. And I want three or four big things to happen every year. And it's hard to believe. It might be six, but it's not 50. And if you have your strategy widely focused, you won't get much done. If you narrow it, and our strategy's quite focused, and I believe that's what's making an impact. Can you share last year's, I won't ask you this year's because you're working on it. The year's <laughs> very young right now, but yeah. uh, can you share last year's big goals and accomplishments? Yeah, so the big accomplishments are strategies in four buckets, as I just said. So it's real estate, financial condition, it's team, and then it's risk. And so in real estate, it's three buckets for us. It's run a great grocery anchored portfolio. And we had some of our best operating metrics ever. So highest occupancy, year-end occupancy ever, high same asset NOI, and lots of other great metrics. And we did some great leasing. The second part of real estate for us is to maximize the value of the Sobeys relationship. So Crombie is a retailer-related REIT. It was rolled out of Empire Company, which owns Sobeys, which is the second largest grocer in Canada, and a very strategic partner for Crombie, which a lot of people just think they're sort of there and they roll it out and go do what you're going to do, run our portfolio. But the reality is that we can maximize value in the real estate by having a very close relationship with the anchor. And whether that be through expanding stores, converting them in Sobey's case to Freshco or Farm Boy, whether it be modernizing their whole portfolio, whether it be buying assets or developing assets for them, or lastly, which is really neat, is unlocking major developments in the major cities in the country. And so the bucket of Sobeys is, I think, our number one opportunity in this country. And it distinguishes Crombie, I think, from almost every other REIT except for Choice and CT REIT. And the reason is because that major development opportunity, major developments are a third bucket of real estate. So it's operated great company, Sobeys, and development. Crombie has a $5 billion retail portfolio that 92% of it is retail assets, grocery stores, and strips and or it's now retail-related industrial, so distribution centers. Mm -hmm. The other 8% is one regional and one big office complex. So we're focused on the grocery retail. But there's 5 billion retail. The development opportunity is 5.8 billion. Wow. And that's mostly residential. And it's mostly in Vancouver. We have 3.2 billion of development opportunity of that five, 60% is in Vancouver. A couple hundred units and you're at a couple billion dollars. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've got one over a billion in Toronto. So... We have our geographic distribution is 40% in the West, 23% in Central Canada, and 30-some percent in Atlantic Canada. I really think the businesses of the future are in the cities. And this allows us to intensify significantly at scale. And if we can do so consistently in these cities, it'll drive NAV value. So back, that's real estate. We'll go into that a little bit later. Financial condition, we made big progress in 2019. We reduced our debt to GBV by 300 basis points. So we went from 51 to 48-ish. Just to find GBVs. Gross book value okay. on a fair value basis. Yeah. 
And we improved our liquidity. We increased the amount of unencumbered assets and we increased the amount of unsecured debt as a percentage of our total debt. So these are incremental things that you do over a number of years, but they make the company stronger to withstand shock in the event of a recession. What was the motivation? I mean, we're at Real Capital and you're talking to two lenders. So clearly this is what I'm focused on. What was the motivation for transferring a little bit more to unsecured debt from property leverage? Yeah, the real goal is we're investment grade rated. We're triple B low and we'd like to get to triple B mid in three to five years. And the reason we wanted to go there is because the unsecured debentures give us more flexibility to do development. So you folks are in the mortgage business. If we had a mortgage on these properties, it's hard to change, right? Whereas we want to do unsecured debentures. So we have the properties free and clear. When we want to pull the trigger to do a development, we can. And then we'll set up the financing accordingly. And importantly, we'll do a lot of CMHC at the end of the day on those residential properties because you can get higher amounts of leverage and you can get lower rates of interest. And 40-year amortization. Do you know anybody that does CMHC lending? (laughs) I don't know. A couple. Because somebody out there, most somebody that knows anything, something about it. And I'm sure we're going to be talking to First National. (laughs) But yeah, so the balance sheet improvement is one thing I'm very proud of. It's sort of understated. Everybody wants to talk real estate, but it's critically important because it's, we always say the world's great right now. We're in the 10th year of an expansion. There will be a recession. And that moment in a recession, it's about liquidity and talent right? Those two things will get you through the recession. And so we have more liquidity than we've ever had before on our balance sheet. And we have better talent, which is sort of ties us into the third part of our strategy, which is improving our team. And we've done so dramatically in a number of fronts, but most importantly, just added more people that are in the real estate game across the country. They're much more talented, CAPAs, CMAs, MBAs, et cetera, et cetera. And so you improve that quality of team. We've done that over the last decade. And then you empower them with an entrepreneurial mindset. It can really lead you to much yeah, better places. And, and especially when you're going into development, right? Which is very different than just owning and occupying a grocery anchored yeah. strip. And it's a different asset class. I mean, while you built retail plazas, it's not the same thing as building yeah. apartment towers. Yeah. Now, right? me personally, I had, remember, 17 years in residential. And we've got 21 people with residential, like direct residential. So we have that talent. But terms of local business, especially the development. So, so far on the three projects we have going, we have 900 million of construction underway. 600 million is our share. All three of it is with partners, two partners to date, and they're amazing partners. They're strong residential apartment builders and developers, and they also want to be owning, right? As opposed to being condo developers. Let me go back a little bit. This is something that I always find interesting, so I'm always pulling on this string, but your ability to attract and retain talent and just what you, as the leader... And maybe the answer is just as the leader that you are and based on the values that you have, it creates a culture that wants people to join and stay. But do you have a specific philosophy about attracting that good talent and keeping them? I mean, that's part of the challenge that I think all the people in your position of, of leading you know, large institutions of finding the right talent, but then holding on to them once you get them in there. Yeah, we have a saying, it's right person, right place, right time. And that's, as you think about the evolution of our business from a $5 billion grocery anchored strip owner to a $5 billion developer. And there's even potential beyond that, believe it or not, because Sobeys has a lot of sites that are leasehold interest. They control the development timeline and we may have the potential to buy those or be partners with certain people on those. So the pipeline, even though it's $5.8 billion, could be larger. But you think about right person, right place, right time for a grocery strip owner. And that's all you do for the next decade versus then transitioning to apartments and at scale. It's a massively different mindset. And so 
We're very fortunate. We have a chief talent officer who is one of the best in the business. And so our programs, I think, are second to none. We focus on things like leadership development and engagement. And importantly, we're building our culture constantly. It's continuous to build your culture. But it's that transition from institutional grocery owner strip owner to entrepreneurial developer while at the same time doing both. And so... Sounds easy. It's yeah. not Any easy. Any growing pain so far? <laughs> culture is the long game, right? You got to play the yeah. long game in culture. And yeah. we have the very good news is that we have a family that's been in the grocery business 110 years, real estate business 65. They stand for strong values, values of integrity, long-term investment, doing things the right way, doing good at the same time as doing well. And so when you bring people in, sometimes people come from cultures and they say, is this real? And it's like, yeah, it's real. Just if you're authentic and we've recruited you because we think you're authentic, lead that way. Just be yourself. It's a lot easier to do that than trying to be something you're not. And you'll fit in well. And then we do need performance. And so we have a very strong performance management system based on balanced scorecards, a Harvard philosophy. And so we have high achievement, right? And it's hard for people, but the people we're trying to attract like challenge. And I think challenge is a bigger hook than money as in terms of a motivator. If you give people interesting things, they don't mind working hard. If it's interesting and something they really want to do, that's actually a much bigger hook to retain them. And then we've been named top employer in Atlantic Canada for six straight years. And we, we've earned it. And we have our programs adjudicated. People look at it. So we're one of the top employers in Atlantic Canada. And I think it's through this building of our systems, building of the way we do things, that ultimately I don't need to be there on a day-to-day basis for it to happen well. And I think that's a critical thing. And I, the full credit is to our team is what it is, right? To do that. Well, it goes back to your doing your absence, what they do in your presence, right? Yeah. That basic philosophy. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, you've got a huge development pipeline. What are you shying away from these days? What assets are you selling or what assets are you no longer buying that you might have bought five or 10 years ago? So when I started, we were about a billion and a half. And today we're five billion. And when I started, we had a number of enclosed secondary market shopping centers Today we have one and it's actually a dominant regional shopping center, but we basically got rid of most of those enclosed shopping centers. We like grocery stores or grocery anchored strips. And the reason is because we have the strategic intelligence of the anchor to tell us which stores are good. Yeah. Right. And which yeah, you, where you those... don't have to worry about them reporting sales and the leases or anything like that. No. Like you get access to that information. You got access to that information. So we like a cross section of call it Vectom markets, secondary markets, and even tertiary markets, because the tertiary market stores we own may have 75% market share. And so they're dominant in their region, even if they're in a town of 5,000 people, they're bond-like more so than anything else. So that has a nice place in our portfolio. The secondary markets in Canada are actually, if you look at Halifax or Victoria, a number of centers, London, Kitchener, Waterloo, they're secondary markets. Everybody wants to talk Vectom, which I will go to in a second. But those secondary markets have higher GDP growth or as high a GDP growth than Toronto. They have higher population growth than Toronto. So these markets are good. They're not as big, so they don't have the liquidity, but they're really good markets. They're gems. And so we like those markets a lot. You can play, buy a great grocery store and do some development. You won't do the scale you'll do in Vancouver, but you'll have a great asset because the people's populations are growing around them. In the Vectom space, we own grocery stores and parking lots in the middle of Toronto and Vancouver. And all around them is density. And we have the opportunity to buy more of those because Sobeys controls them through the lease. That is the best land that you can find in those cities. And we have it at scale, right? We have one site in Vancouver is five acres on a transit node. And all that exists on it today is a grocery store. And parking lot. And parking lot, (laughs) right? Ah. How can you assemble land 
You would drive yourself nuts trying to do that today. Yeah. yeah. So it's spectacular. We have nine of those in Vancouver. Wow. Every one of them is. But before I forget, what's Vec Tom? Did you? Oh, did, sorry. I, Vancouver, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. Uh, have you heard that before? I heard it before, but I didn't know what it meant. I knew, I knew it was a collection of cities. Well, yeah, yeah, the yeah. other thing people like to say is, well, it's only Vancouver, Toronto, right? And so, yes, for a trillion dollar pension fund, like the Norwegian pension fund, yes, they only want to invest in the best cities in the world. And maybe it's the top 10 cities and maybe Toronto fits in that, maybe Vancouver. Okay, at that scale, fine. But there's lots of investors that aren't trillion dollar investors. Yeah, sure. And they like yield and they like growth. And for us, again, with a family that's owned the grocery business for 110 years in real estate, we not only look at current returns, we look at short, medium, and long. So when we look at the cash flow of a business, we look at a 30-year IRR at the same time as we look at a 10-year. We have our eye on that future. The markets don't want to pay you for that, but the family is disciplined. We are disciplined as management. And so we're thinking the developments, it's yes, there's huge nav pop. We're building assets in Vancouver at a five and a half cap yield on cost. That's wow. worth a three cap yeah, yeah, yeah. That's or a great. two and a half. But, and so that's your nav creation opportunity, which is at scale, massive especially relative to our company size. But what I also like is the cash flow grows at 4 to 5% on residential yeah. rent. You do a 30-year cash flow on that rental growth, it's very complementary to the rest of our portfolio. And that's interesting because of the history, obviously a 100-year company of holding real estate, you can do a 30-year discounted cash flow and be comfortable with that horizon just because that's your intention of holding. Yeah, it doesn't translate to the markets. When I meet with investors, the average hold period today in the stock market is like 11 months. That's 90% of people hold 11 months. So they're saying, what's your catalyst tomorrow? I say, well, the catalyst tomorrow is that we're going to complete 300 million of development this year, 2020. That'll be worth 100 to 150 million more. It'll be worth four to 450 million. And I'll complete another 300 million in 21. That'll be worth 400 to 450 million. Wait a sec, how many shares do you have? 150 million. Hmm. That's a dollar to two dollars a share of NAV creation in the short term. Oh, great. Yeah. Talk to our SOBI shareholders. They'll say, I like that, but I also like the 30-year IRR. Which is, so it, <laughs> yeah. it depends on the constituency. Yeah, but as a management team, we appreciate short, medium, and long-term. We have to balance them all. But if you're getting all of them, you're going to do very well, right? Through good times and bad. Well, with all your parking lots spread across the country, you can talk about development of the pipeline over the next year or two, but also you could probably talk 10, 15 years quite easily yes. and keep delivering, keep delivering without having to rely on acquisitions. And Well, the real trick is to build consistency at scale. So consistent growth. So we spend on Sobeys related activities about 100 to 150 million a year on modernizations, conversions, buying finished property, but we're spending about 150 to 200 million a year on development. If you can do that and even maybe torque it up over time, if you can do that consistently every year, you get the NAV creation, you get the AFFO growth that everybody, whoever they are, loves, right? And so it's not that complicated. I hate to be negative, and I'm sorry for going here, but you know, there's this retail and online distribution and groceries at your front door and all that. There must be some discussion about how you protect yourself against some of those changes that are occurring in the retail space. What do those conversations sound like? So the first thing I'll say is that the number of retailers that have opened in Canada has exceeded the number of retailers that has closed in Canada the last three years, which is a fact nobody knows because yeah, all they hear... repeat that just so everybody hears it yeah, again? Yeah, so the number of retailers that have opened is greater than the number of retailers yeah, that have closed. You don't closed. see headlines of new retailers open. You only see the no. headlines of the retailers closing. Retailers closing. Yeah. And that's... So the retail apocalypse is a catchy headline. It gets everybody's attention. They get nervous. It, it captures attention, which is what the media wants to do. But the reality is something different. And retail has always been 
an industry that has accelerated change, faster change than any other sector of the real estate industry. So if you think about it, so we're used to it, but the narrative has been more pervasive this time, and especially in the public markets. They're starting to come around, and the reality is that it's bifurcated. So bifurcated in that, I'll call it fashion, big box Mm -hmm. is weaker, and grocery anchored or super regionals are strong, okay? And if you look at the list of retailers that are opening, most of those are in our space, the grocery anchored strip. They're gyms, they're winners, they're discount stores, they're Giant Tiger, they're all kinds of, they're, they're great retailers, but they're in our space. And they're service, coffee shops, quick service restaurants, et cetera. Which is a compliment. Which is a compliment, yeah. And so our locations are nestled at Maine and Maine and residential neighborhoods. So it's convenience, it's service and experience, right? And so for us, that narrative is wrong. And so we're just trying to keep communicating that. And then the growth for us is, again, it's just this transitioning of improving the grocery retailer. So in e-commerce, the issue is not whether you're in a certain space. It's how you differentiate yourself from Amazon, but it's also whether you're investing in digital. So if you're investing in digital, you're figuring out how to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. And make it complementary to your business. The good news is our sister company, Sobeys, has said they want to be number one or two in e-commerce grocery delivery. And they're making a massive investment in a platform called Ocado. And so they're about to complete their first distribution center in Toronto, in Vaughan. It's in Ocado, D.C., a customer fulfillment center in the spring of 2020. And then we're actually participating in building the one in Montreal that'll complete in 2021. And so if you're a retailer that's investing in digital, you're going to compete directly with them. It's tough, but you're going to compete and you're going to figure it out. And that's where I think the retailers that do that will differentiate themselves. Amazon is a force, okay? So Amazon's free cash flow last year, 24 billion. This year, 32 billion. Forecast for 2024 at 80 billion, right? It's a massive force. I call that weaponized capital. They can buy whatever they want. Not only that, they have an algorithm and artificial intelligence that is good. It's working 24-7. Computers don't take a break and go to sleep. They work 24-7. So they're going to be a formidable competitor. But the good news is Sobeys is also a great retailer, Amazon, by the way, doesn't have infrastructure really today. It's that last mile concept. It's that last mile concept. And so a friend of ours, John O'Brien from CBRE, characterized Amazon as the lion at the back of the herd. At the front of the herd is the strong, financially low-margin retailers. At the back of the herd that's going to get eaten first is the weak, high-margin retailers. And the good news for us is Sobeys is a very strong, both from a retail and financial point of view, but also a low-margin business with an infrastructure in place. They have some of the best sites in the country. And the reality is that grocery today, it makes up about one half of 1% is e-commerce home delivery. So even though somebody can grow fast, it's going to take a long time to get to five or even 10%. And so for us, we're optimistic. And we believe that by that time, I think Michael Medline, the CEO of Sobeys, has said he'd like to be number one or two. And whether Amazon's one and Ocado's two or Ocado's one and Amazon's two, that's generally what we're believing. So, and for Crombie in particular, by the way, we own 5% retail related industrial. It's all either automated delivery centers to the store, or now our first one is a home delivery Ocado CFC. And that likely is to grow. That likely is to grow. So we think in 10 years time, we could be at about 5% retail related industrial by the end of this year. And we could be at 10%, 10 to 15. And then a residential, we could be about 20% in 10 years. We'll be 8% residential in two. We love grocery. We don't know where that goes, but we love it. And we have the second largest retailer and one of the strongest in the country. 
But we look at the accelerated growth in residential and retail-related industrial as defensive to some degree, but also de-risk the business to some degree, but it also increases growth rate. Mm. There's some interesting value, value, value in different ways. Value at different ways, but we still obviously have lots of confidence. And that relationship with Sobeys, as I said, delivering expansions, delivering modernizations, delivering conversion to Freshco, and budget buying shopping centers from them that are well located is an ongoing investment of 100, 150 million a year that we want to continue to make to make Sobe stronger. The automated industrial, the handful you've got, yeah. how cool is it inside those buildings? It's ultra cool. So uh, the Vaughn DC, that's an automated distribution center that distributes to stores, is 600,000 square feet. We just actually bought the second half of it. We owned half of it for a few years. We own 100% now. And it's 60 foot clear. And it's got wow. 70 people that work. In Only it. so not, 60 foot clear? That's nothing. Not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got steel I-beam equipment moving faster than any of us can run up and down the aisles and vertically as well. And then it's packing everything onto a pallet the way it's going to come off in each individual store in the order in which it needs to come off. So it drives efficiency at the store level. And it's pristine. It operates in the dark. So it's a very cool thing when you're sitting there watching the stuff move at speed. The Okado DCs are, I call them R2-D2s. They're little robots that run around the floor and pick up from the hive. These are individual packs for home delivery, right? Your home delivery is much smaller packaging. But all that technology is cool. There's no question. And so for us, we believe the investment Sobeys is making is very strong and the right way to go. If you don't, I think you're toast. So they're making a very strong investment. We think they picked the winners. Witron is the automated system that they use for the stores and Okado's for the home delivery. And so for us, we're very pleased and obviously very supportive and want to be part of more of that. So Don, we want to thank you for sharing you know, everything you do with us today. Those industrial buildings sound truly amazing. The wave of the future. You know, I can't wait to see how you adapt and roll into the next decade ahead of us. It's super interesting to see what you're doing. Thanks for your time today. We want to thank Informa for hosting us here at the Real Capital Conference. And once again, Don, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.